Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Lloyd Devereaux Richards, author of the new novel, Maidens of the Cave, and his daughter, Marguerite. Lloyd and Marguerite, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank nice you. Nice to be here, Jeff. Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about the une- unexpected success of your first novel, Stone Maidens, in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you about your brand new novel. If someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Maidens of the Cave, how would you describe the novel? Well, first off, uh, the lead uh, protagonist in the book is a female FBI forensic scientist. Her name is Christine Prusik. Uh, It's set in the Midwest. Her offices are in Chicago, but she, as this book uh, gets into, uh, Chicago FBI office uh, takes in a lot of the Midwestern states. And the particular novel, this is number two, the second novel, uh, involves um, co-eds in a couple of several universities that turn up, their bodies turn up inside caves. And the only similar, they're not molested in any way, but they're the similar uh, detail to the uh, victims is this um, circular bruise in the back of their neck. Uh, she's brought in in book two, Christine Prusik, to help with a local sheriff that she also helped in book one um, because they had a very, they, they successfully uh, solved that crime. Um, and she left uh, without getting permission. This is one of her uh, uh, qualities. She once she hears of a case and it's compelling to her, she frequently uh, does not go up the chain of command and get permissions, etc. And there's a new boss that she has in the Chicago office, and this displeases uh, the new boss very much. <laughs> and so this the book has this balance going between Christine as a personality, a difficult personality, and an, an intriguing. Uh, 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 forensic scientist and, um, you know, the crime itself and how she gets pulled into it. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Maidens of the Cave? Well, actually, it's sort of a, in a sense, um, it stems from the first book in that I went to law school in Indiana. It's set in, in southern Indiana, as the first book is. And I went to law school in Bloomington, Indiana. And during that time period, I uh, became aware of a series of crimes uh, involving co-eds who, a lot of hardwood forests that have trails there. And there were there was a person I knew, a woman, who was attacked but survived. And the nature of her attack was similar when I, when I met her at the hospital after she'd already been uh, assisted. I heard from one of the t- state detectives investigating that it was very similar in nature to several unsolved murders. And I think that was the beginning of a kernel of, of, of my desire to write a book later when I moved to Vermont, where I live now. Um, some years after leaving Indiana, that uh, incident also uh, caused this second book because it also involves the death of co-eds. But it's a very different book qualitatively. But I think I was very impressed geographically with Southern Indiana. I think a lot of I'm from the East Coast originally, and I didn't know much about the Midwest, but having lived in this southern Indiana 
for eight years uh, working for a judge after I graduated, I really came to love uh, the middle of the United States. We have some of the most beautiful woods in the world. And so it was a great setting in my thinking for this book. Well, your first novel, Stone Maidens, was published in 2012, but something completely unexpected happened to you and the novel earlier this year. Marguerite, can you explain what happened? Well, I was inspired by my dad's, you know, love of writing um, and low sales, the combination to make a, a video. And I made that video and it obviously went extremely viral. Uh, I was hoping to get a few readers and we ended up getting way more than that. And it's it's just created this incredible, you know, this wave of the everyone loving and knowing my dad and Stone Maiden. So it's, it's, it's just been amazing. Excuse me. Well, I, I think you may be underselling it just a, just a, a hair. For those listening who aren't familiar with the story, the original 16-second TikTok video has been viewed more than 56 million times. And I checked before I got on this call, and there are over 46,000 comments on that original 16-second video. What gave you the idea to post that video about your dad and his novel? Well, that exact video, those were kind of the places I grew up watching my dad write in that, that exact chair where he was sitting. And I kind of just moved around the room from different places where I used to watch him. So it was sort of a, as I've been saying, like a little micro memoir for me. And I wanted to do it because I know people, I knew he wrote a beautiful book and I just know, I just felt like nobody knew about it. After 11 years, I was certain nobody knew about it. <laughs> and um, I, like I said, I mean, I had, I didn't even really think that far into it. I just thought a few people would learn about it. But yeah, what happened was just magical, really. Sure. And, and, and worthy. I mean, he's a beautiful writer and he's a, I think he's a wonderful father. He's a wonderful person. So it, sort of the perfect storm, I guess. <laughs> and and I, I should add, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, that, that um, you know, after I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier 56 million views, and after this 16-second video about your dad and his first novel went viral, uh, the sales um, resulted in the book hitting number one on Amazon. And um, I wondered, before you posted that video, were you a big TikTok user yourself? I just consume TikTok. I, I sometimes <laughs> post videos and I like making videos and like with the family and my friends, I'm always the one taking pictures. But no, I was not like in this kind of a league before at all. But sure. I do like, uh, you know, checking out other videos. I have an interest in it in that way. But no, nothing like this before. What's the song in the background of that initial video? So it's a, I'm not exactly where it's from. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that, but it's a, it's a cover. I'm not sure exactly where the audio is from exactly, but it's a cover of John Lennon and my dad. You know, when I think of John Lennon, he always reminds me of my dad. And when I heard that sound, I knew it was kind of, I'd heard it on a lot of videos on TikTok. And I, when right. I, I wasn't really thinking that far, but when I made the video, actually, um, I posted it with a different sound. And after about an hour, it had like maybe like 10 views or something silly. I just didn't like it and I deleted mm -hmm. it. And I redid it again with 
that song. And I was like, that's it. That's perfect. Because I heard this song and I was like, oh my God, that makes me think of my dad. And so I actually deleted it and redid the video and posted it. That's interesting. And, I, I didn't recognize it as a Lennon cover. You said you deleted it, then you then you re-recorded it with the with the new um, song behind it. After you posted it that second time, when did you yourself realize that something was happening as a result well, of posting this sixteen second video? Yeah, when I went to bed that night, a couple hours later, it was at like two hundred views, and so that's kind of where I thought it was. And I was actually excited because he had had like five followers. And I think someone said, that's how I want to read that book. Cause I had shown the back of the book in the video so people could read it. And I thought I was excited about that. But when I woke up in the morning, it had um, over 700,000 views just while we were sleeping. Wow. And I was like, I, and I thought that might even be it. And I was blown away by that, but it was growing so fast and so quickly after that. I think by the, within a day or so, it had like 15 million views. And his book already started to move on Amazon sure. very quickly. He was number one on Amazon within two days of posting the video to give you an idea of how fast it all happened. So we actually couldn't even emotionally really keep up with it. It all happened so fast. And actually he didn't even know about it yet. So I, I hadn't told him. In January, Jeff, I had zero book sales. <laughs> Just to and, compare. And who, who was the publisher of the, of the, of your debut novel. Who was the public? Thomas and Mercer. They're okay. an Amazon imprint. Yeah. Got it. Has anyone from TikTok reached out to you? Have you talked to anyone at TikTok? Um, yeah. When everything was happening, they have like, um, there was a few people from TikTok. There was like a, I guess it's like they're, they have a bunch of different branches that'll reach out, but it was a woman who wanted to just help us. Like she contacted us and just wanted to have a conversation. And, um, ask if we like had any questions about it or anything. And one, yeah, it was just, we just sort of had a meeting with her. It was sort of um, unofficial. I can't even remember what her exact role was. She was very nice. And we, we right. just had a FaceTime call with her. And then another like approved by TikTok company, it's called TikTok for good collaborated with us. And we made a video with them to kind of spread the good news and TikTok themselves reposted our video and made like on their official page. Right. Right. They made a video for us as well. So that was really exciting. And they comment on our videos, which is also like, you know. That's amazing. And, and, girl and, and, and I wonder in your conversations with them, did they ever talk to you about kind of um, the virality or, or how the algorithm works? I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm sure they're not going to give away secrets, but I'm just curious, like how it went from 200 to 700,000. I know. No, they we we weren't speaking with anyone about algorithm right, stuff. Right. I think honestly, and I don't know. I don't know anything about how TikTok works, but sure. I think they don't even know it's going to go viral. So it's sort of like all of them <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> they were just as surprised as us, you know. So it's a combination of um from what I understand and I can't express I can't explain why this video invoked this, but it's a combination of how long someone will watch a video, whether mm -hmm. they like or comment. Right. And then whether or not they go to your page and then if they follow you, those are sort of the steps. So that was happening so fast that the algorithm just kept pushing it, pushing it, pushing right, it. Right. Because yeah, within like the end of the first day, I think it was like over 10 million views within a day, which is really crazy. And yeah, that's I just know that. I mean, <laughs> we've stayed humble through all this because also 
this was overnight, but it was also 25 years. It was 14 of years course. of my dad writing and 11 years of not having this. So, you know, we got to eat our humble pie for many years before this, which I think is good, you know, because yeah, I think this isn't so, a typical thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Lloyd, can you talk to us about um, what happened after um after all of this var- virality and the and the you know first novel hit number one on um, Amazon, were you immediately contacted by book publishers? Because just to set the scene for someone listening, this happened in February. What we're talking about in terms of the video, and now we're in August, and you're publishing a book through Harper Collins. That's right. It was like my daughter just said. It things escalated rapidly, uh, media calling. I have an agent that actually placed my first book, Stone Maidens, and she got in touch with me pretty uh, quickly because she's in New York City, and that's where a lot of the traditional publishing houses are based. And um, Harper Collins was very, very interested. And um, that was three weeks after the video was posted. Yeah, not even contact. three weeks, but 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 maybe it, less. That's when things really started to roll a little bit. Right. And then, of course, we were invited down to New York by the Today Show and appeared there, <laughs> and um, that was quite exciting because uh, I'm 75, and um, be honest with you, because of the pandemic, I had not really been inside. Um, you know, in, in the major city, but in a restaurant even. And I here I went down in February. This is really the first time I sat with my son who lives in New York City in a restaurant. And uh, I went on the set. And I have to tell you that no one, and you probably know this more than I do, no one in New York in February was wearing a mask, indoors or out, it seemed. So, you know, I had that. I just, I went in, in spite of that because this was so incredible. Sure. I, I felt I should go, uh, you know, and my daughter and I enjoyed that. And, uh, and then pretty Harper Collins really wanted the book, the sequel knew I had written one, which I finished last summer. <laughs> and um, so that's, and they very much escalated this. I mean, to think that in April, whenever they got started in the pr- copy, um, uh, copy editing phase, uh, it was almost like a little over four months, but it was very quickly. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing for traditional publishers. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so can you talk to us? I mean, you mentioned before, um, uh, as we were talking, you were talking about, you know, working as a lawyer. Can you talk about your fiction writing journey and what led you to writing your first novel, Stone Maidens? Good question. I uh, had never, I wrote poetry in college, and uh, but just for myself, nothing to publish. And I uh, went to law school, of course, as I mentioned, and I worked for a judge, so I was drafting opinions for him. But it was all uh, lawyer-related documentation and writing. And um, But when I moved to Vermont to work as a lawyer for a, li- a mid-sized life insurance company here in Montpelier, um, I had... During my early years here, I had this desire, probably I was around 42, 43 years old, uh, to learn how to write. I'd never, and I wanted to write a book, but I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about how to do that. So I basically worked with a professor. We have a writing college, or we did up here at Vermont 
College of Fine Arts, and I worked with this guy that I met there uh, with some of my ideas. I started writing, and he helped me a lot with front story, back story, pace, dialogue. You know, he took me through what he told me after two years. Lloyd, you basically have an MFA, because I worked very hard. Uh, this is while um, I was working full-time. So I would work on weekends, and after dinner at night, I would burn the candle at both ends, get up very early in the morning, and uh, right then. I had this passion to tell this story about that involved uh, a woman being attacked in southern Indiana. And, of course, the story is fiction the way I developed it. I became interested in, and I don't want to give away the nature of the book, but I became interested in several features of the characters involved, um, which involved a lot of research on my part to understand better the phenomenon that I was talking about. So during this time, my daughter mentioned uh, 14 years from the beginning of the whole writing process to selling the book first, well, to convincing an agent that it was a good enough book to try to sell. Um, it, it, it was, uh, it's a real undertaking and it was one of joy. I loved the process. You know, I think for anyone that loves the process of trying to tell a story and let me tell you, Jeff, I told it wrong every possible way you can imagine. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing half the time and I, uh, that's okay. I think making mistakes is the best thing because I got to see after looking at it over time and figuring it out differently, how to point of view differently. Uh, you know, I learned from trial and error. And uh, just because I enjoy the process, I think you have to enjoy the process. Because let me tell you, I had no idea that someone would buy my book. I mean, I hoped it might happen. Uh, it took me seven months to get an agent. You know, it's very difficult. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and all these things were stepping stones or building blocks because they tested my desire and i kept at it i was determined i, I just wouldn't take no for an answer <laughs> well are you have you started thinking about or working on a third novel oh i definitely have <laughs> it's well on the underway um i actually wrote during the pandemic a standalone novel which uh has been purchased by uh england it's called the runner i don't know when they're going to uh publish it but it, it could be early next year but um that that is an interesting tie-in with with the trilogy that i'm working on now the third installment of the first two books stone maidens and maidens of the cave but I, it's well along the way <laughs> that's great <laughs> I have to say, the reason for that is because and i want to encourage your listeners when my daughter made this video and it became viral God, God, only God knows why uh, it did, though. And it, it, it instilled in me when I read all the comments by these people on TikTok that were so positive and loving. It was almost 99% really loved the book. And that just propelled me back into, uh, you know, thinking that, you know, this is something I can continue. And then that was what HarperCollins asked, would he consider a trilogy? And uh, that was all I needed to hear. And I started to work <laughs> on it in the spring. Well, well given your experience, uh, taking as long as it did to, to, as you know, in your words, 
basically learn how to, to write a novel. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? I think uh, for me, starting from scratch, it, it was what I needed to do. Um, you know, I haven't had a, I didn't go to an MFA program. Um, I didn't start out trying to write short stories and take courses to learn how to do that. I, uh, jumped in with both feet and I landed on my face and I, but I was persistent. I think persistence is key. My daughter mentions this first video that went viral. They would sit on the, the office where I wrote the book is on the steps to the attic. And uh, they would frequently walk up the steps, uh, my children, and see me at this primitive computer. Because back in the <laughs> early 90s, it was an IBM. It had a green screen. It was horrible. And, you know, you could type faster than the cursor. You know, it had such low power. But in any event, that's where I started. And I think my advice is don't give up. Don't give up hope. I'm 75. It happened to me later in life. I'm happy. I can't, but I never expected it. I'm perfectly happy to accept uh, the other direction. I just think that if you like doing something, keep at it because otherwise, you know, nothing happens. You know, it's always valuable to try something. And I think failure is the best success because I learned so much from my failure. You know, I wanted to, to improve on it. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? I've read a number of books in my genre that I enjoy very much. Uh, I've reread Thomas Harris's trilogy or four books on Hannibal Lecter. I lo love his writing. He's, got, he's a brilliant mind. Uh, I've read uh, David Baldacci. Uh, I love uh, uh, Henning Mankell, who's recently deceased in the last four or five years, wonderful, created the character Wallander, Swedish writer. Um, uh, I've read lots of other books that are, you know, uh, uh, that are in my genre that are contemporary. Uh, I don't know how much it influences me. I know a lot of the books that have been very popular are in the first person point of view. I tend to write in the third person. Mm -hmm. um, but there's there's so many good gifted writers. I'm having a bit of a writer's block remembering all the names. But I've in the last year I've read quite a few different um, books in my genre. Sure. Well, um, and I like the older ones too. I mean, like I said, Thomas Harris and uh, um, oh John Grisham, of course. It doesn't have to be a thriller with uh, murder involved. Like Michael Connelly, he's very good. Sure. Dennis Lehane is a great writer. Well, Marguerite, where can people find your dad online if they want to learn more about him and his novels? And can you tell uh, the listeners uh, where they can find the TikTok video? Yeah, our TikTok is um, at Stone Maidens. And we post there regularly. And same with our Instagram, which is stone.maidens. And then we've just started threads. We don't post there a ton. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the same as Instagram. It has the same username and everything, stone.maidens. And yeah, we're pretty active on there. As long as we're still inspired to keep making videos and having fun together, which so far so good, we'll keep <laughs> posting. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, again, we've been speaking to Lloyd Devereaux Richards, author of the new novel Maidens of the Cave and his daughter Marguerite. 
And the novel is available now. So go buy a copy. And Lloyd and Marguerite, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. It was Monday, March 26th, and Christine was running late, as usual. She pulled open the heavy door to the large function room on the mezzanine level of the Chicago Marriott and entered as quietly as she could. The room was dimly lit and filled with agents seated in front of a podium and overhead screen. The door closed behind Christine with a pronounced thump. Patricia Gaston, the new director of the FBI's Chicago branch, glanced up from the podium, squinting in Christine's direction, then proceeded with her comments. With the aid of a laser pointer, Gaston was reviewing a new reorg chart displayed on the screen. Christine searched for her name on the labyrinthine roster of names clustered beneath boxes representing each divisional unit of the branch office. There it was, Christine Prusik, forensics, near the bottom of the screen, directly under the name Ned Miranda. Who the hell is he? Based on the screen diagram, the revamped structure pushed her further down the hierarchical chain. Not what she'd imagined after 14 successful years at the Bureau. Maybe Roger Thorne, the former Chicago branch director who this past winter had taken a higher-up bureau position in Washington, had alerted the new branch director to Christine's habit of bending, and yes, she admitted, occasionally breaking, the rules. She did have a tendency to go solo without keeping her superiors punctually informed, but it was only because time was of the essence in a criminal investigation. That was a truth that never changed. Christine caught a sideways glimpse of Gaston's flashy red suit when the new branch director stepped away from the podium. The director's voice found its cadence in a confident monotone as she flashed through a series of PowerPoint slides, illustrating a slew of new administrative forms. The laser pointer zigzagged in accompaniment with each new graphic, underscoring the refrain that all personnel were expected to complete these forms and deliver them in a timely fashion to the various unit heads, including Christine, head of the forensics unit, who were required to sign off promptly. Daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual report forms. Christine shook her head in consternation. Daily reports? What about police work? But a change in management meant putting her best foot forward, and she would give it her best shot. First impressions last longest. She could hear her mother telling her on her first day of eighth grade at St. Agnes's in Detroit. Jort Zaprusik had ironed the pleated pale blue blouse of Christine's uniform early that same morning so she'd look her best say, yes, ma'am, when spoken to, and be sure to always smile, button your lip unless asked to speak by one of the nuns. Do you hear me, Christine? So Christine had learned the drill, say yes, smile, and answer politely when asked a question. Unfortunately, she was never very good at that particular drill. Christine scrolled through her phone messages and emails as Gaston droned on. Her phone vibrated, It was the incoming call that she'd been expecting from Dr. Ernie Hansen, the Carbondale, Illinois medical examiner. Local Illinois police had earlier reported that a missing Lincoln Technical College student's dead body had been found on an embankment of the Little Muddy River in a remote quadrant of the Shawnee National Forest in the wilds of southern Illinois. 
Hansen's call to Christine had come at the recommendation of Dr. Walter Henniger from Crosshaven, Indiana, who'd said good things about Christine's crime-solving abilities based on his work with her on a particularly brutal series of murders during the preceding year. Christine exited the meeting hall to take the call in the lounge. She confirmed her arrangements to meet with the medical examiner the next day at his office in Carbondale, a smallish city of 26,000 located near the bottom of the state, not far from the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. She thought it unusual that Hansen would call in the FBI so early. Over the phone, she discerned obvious distress in the doctor's voice, an uneasy bewilderment. Whatever had caused the young victim's death, this local M.E. clearly wanted her assistance right now. Finishing her call with Hansen, Christine re-entered the meeting room. The overhead lights were now on, and Patricia Gaston was shaking hands and greeting agents up front. A tall, thin man with closely cropped dark hair approached Christine. He cleared his throat. You must be Christine Prusik, he said tentatively, as if he'd just double-checked her bureau profile picture on the computer system. Christine held out her hand, and they shook. And you must be Ned Miranda, she said, recalling the name directly above hers on the overhead screen. He nodded and forced a quick smile, glancing back at Patricia Gaston, who was making her way toward them. Watching the slight, well-tanned woman now in charge of Chicago's bureau branch shake hands as she walked down the aisle, Christine felt a sudden apprehension. Regardless of how well-intentioned and conscientious Miranda may be in performing his duties, this younger agent was now her new boss, and she, Christine, was now twice removed from the branch office's topmost command. Whatever else this meant, it couldn't be good news. Miranda made the introductions, and the forensic anthropologist offered her hand to Gaston, whose thin fingers barely pressed the ends of Christine's. It was an awkward shake that felt, more than anything else, like a queen obliging her subject. Ned's told me so much about you, Christine. You've got a storied history. So many unusual cases that you've worked on. Why, thank you, Director Gaston, Christine said politely, unable to tell whether she'd just been complimented or mocked. I asked Ned to mark out some time for us all, perhaps later this week, when we could discuss the direction of the forensics unit. Christine nodded in what she hoped was a cheerful manner. Keston's choice of the word direction sounded like ominous code for it's time to dismantle and retrofit the forensics team. Look, Christine said, setting aside departmental worries. I have an important matter to bring to your attention, Patricia. It really can't wait. I've received two calls from downstate, a Carbondale M.E. who's got a body, a young college student who'd been missing for a number of days. They found her body today under bizarre circumstances. He's requested our help. Ned, I have to run. Gaston pressed her hand on Miranda's forearm and lifted her shiny leather briefcase from the floor. It was so nice meeting you, Christine. She left the room. Give me a sec, Christine, Ned said gesturing for her to wait as he followed the branch director out the door. Christine couldn't believe her eyes and ears. Gaston hadn't shown the least bit of interest in the news of a young woman's death that fell squarely within her lawful jurisdiction. 
Prusik had a sinking feeling that she and her forensics team were headed for darker days. Technically speaking, Christine's field of expertise, forensic anthropology, was largely limited to the study of skeletal remains in order to decipher how a particular death may have resulted, naturally, by suicide or homicide. She was a duly certified member of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, though she'd never felt it necessary to add the acronym ABFA to her stationery or business cards for purposes of getting her job done. If it was determined that a death had been caused by a third person or persons, it was the forensic anthropologist's job to pick up any clues that could be gleaned from the bone evidence in order to identify the cause of death and the circumstances, if possible. With any luck, and a thorough examination of the site where remains are found, a good forensic anthropologist might gain some sense of the who, when, why, and how. Christine relied heavily upon the technical and scientific colleagues who composed her forensics team, and they, in turn, relied on sophisticated lab testing and software analysis to enhance any clues recovered. On those occasions involving multiple crimes of a similar nature, her team had access to the vast universe of the federal and state interlinked crime databases. Steady budgetary cutbacks, except in the case of a few departments that were the recipients of colossal fiscal increases for the War on Terror, had put pressure on all regional bureau laboratory teams to commingle resources and participate with other departments in the handling and examining of major crime scene evidence. Increasingly, therefore, Christine and her forensic team were expected to investigate all major crimes assigned to them including the examination of dead bodies in various states of decomposition, not just skeletal remains. Christine had taken several years of postdoctoral training and become quite adept at postmortem exams. She generally welcomed the added responsibility, finding fieldwork and postmortems a challenge and an opportunity to escape the daily drudgery of deskwork and the insidious torment of office politics that went with it. A minute later, Miranda came striding back into the meeting room, grooves deepening across his forehead. What's wrong? He said. You look upset. Me? Upset? That the new branch director has zero interest in a murder case in her jurisdiction? Christine forced a chuckle, shaking her head in disapproval. This is a significant matter, Ned, and it will most likely require our resources straight away. Listen, Christine. Miranda stood closer to her, so not to be overheard by hotel staff busily at work cleaning the carpet. If you'd made the meeting on time, you would have understood the reason for the new reorg chart. Miranda was right. She'd come in at the end of Patricia Gaston's remarks and only glanced at the overhead screen before ducking out to take the call from the Carbondale M.E. Clearly, she'd missed something important. Okay, then. What exactly is going on? Patricia has asked all unit heads, including forensics, to produce detailed technical descriptions for each position under your direct or indirect supervision. As a unit head, you are responsible to see to it that each of your direct reports completes a professional and technical qualifications profile consistent with the Hayes-Stanley worksheet in two weeks' time. Professional and technical qualifications profile? What the hell is that? 
Miranda gave her a cut-the-crap look. The PTQP program is combined with the Hayes Stanley worksheet. A software link is in an email that was already sent to you and all other agents. I click on the link, then log on, creating a unique password. The program will load and guide you and each member of your forensic team on how to address and complete the worksheet, using special metrics devised for the purpose. Christine felt suddenly fatigued. Regardless of whether you like what I'm telling you, keep in mind, Christine, that completing it accurately and timely is crucial, as it ties directly to salary and bonus scales. Miranda paused and then added, Oh, and one other thing. Developing the final document for your unit's reports will require your attendance at a unit head meeting to be held twice a week until completion. Filling out forms was foreign to her DNA. Christine abhorred chain-of-command speak and the accompanying hierarchical administration, who reports to whom, that invariably brings a slowdown in the field, if not a complete stoppage, as now apparently would be the case, she feared. Getting her real job done took precedence. It just had to. Come on, Ned. The local police depend on us. So now what? I'm supposed to fill out a form telling you of a crime scene needing our investigative assistance? And then you go tell Patricia and wait for Patricia to tell you that she'll get back to you about it? Then you come tell me to wait until, what, a form is stamped? She hadn't meant to sound so strident. She burned to get going to the Carbondale ME's office. Miranda's cheeks flushed. Lose the sarcasm, Christine. It won't work with me. I'm not telling you how to do your job. This initiative is a separate task, in addition to your normal duties, and compulsory, I might add. An older woman in a maid's uniform was tugging on her cleaning cart. A wheel had gotten stuck on the lip of the carpet. Christine helped the woman lift the machine free. Gracias, the woman said. De nada, Christine replied, stepping over to a large exterior window to get away from the vacuuming noises. Cars were crossing the Chicago River below. Miranda followed her to the side of the meeting hall. I apologize for sounding brusque, she said. If I've learned anything in my years here, it's that cooperation from a skilled working team is of vital importance. We need to be able to function together. It's, it's these non-essential aspects, the endless busy work that tends to muck things up. Do you know what I mean, Ned? Miranda briefly closed his eyes, then popped them back open and checked his watch. Unfortunately, I've got to run now. I'll catch up with you this afternoon and we can discuss it more then. He strode off, leaving her standing in the hall while the cleaning crew bustled around her. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.